I begin a new series of messages today called Beginnings, Solutions for Today's Issues from the Book of Genesis. Beginnings, Solutions for Today's Issues from the Book of Genesis. And I want you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And uh, I'll give you a few minutes to find that. <laughs> okay. Everybody got it? Let's read God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And we'll stop there. You may be seated. Beginnings, the solutions for today's issues from the book of Genesis. And it's often been said that the first 11 chapters of the Bible, in some ways, are the most important chapters in all the Bible because they tell us so many important facts that deal with the most critical issues that we face in life. Now, this verse, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's where we're going to park today. We're not going to get much further. A little boy was reading this verse, but it was springtime like it is now, and he had baseball on his mind. And so he read it like this, in the big inning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, it was a big ending, wasn't it? I mean, that was a pretty stupendous ending, if you think about it, that God would create the whole universe as this verse says that He did. This is the most read verse in all the Bible. Do you know that? The reason I know that is so many people start out to read the Bible, and most of them get at least this far. And then they quit where it starts saying the begets and all that kind of thing. But the most read verse in all the Bible is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Well, I'm glad it is because this verse is foundational. This verse is absolutely fundamental because it holds the key to understanding the rest of the Bible. If you really if you really master as much as is humanly possible the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you will have the key that will help you to understand the rest of your Bible. Somebody said it like this, that God hung the key to understanding the Bible right at the front door so everybody would have it and they would not miss it. They would not misunderstand His Word. This has been called also the seedbed of the Bible because the seeds of every major doctrine, every major Christian belief system, you will find it in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And the reason it is so critically important to us right now in the times in which we live is because 
Genesis answers what we call the ultimate questions. And what do I mean by the ultimate questions? Philosophers and theologians and people who think in this vein, they refer to ultimate questions. Well, what do we mean when we say the ultimate questions? Ultimate questions are those that deal with the absolutely critical, vital issues of our life and our existence. The ultimate questions deal with questions like this. Is there a God? This answers that. Who am I? And Genesis tells me who I am. Where did I come from? What is my purpose here on the earth? Why is there so much evil and suffering in life? And where am I going when this life is over? If you really do in your soul of souls understand and know the answers to those questions based upon a biblical framework, you have what we call a biblical worldview. That is a biblical worldview right there. And a worldview means the way that we look at life and the way we perceive things, the way we interpret the events of life, the lens through which we look and interpret life. I have fairly uh, poor vision. And when I take off my glasses, I don't see near as well. I can't read a thing until my arms get about six foot long. I won't be able to ever read a print. But when I put on my glasses, voila, I can see perfectly to read, can't I? So the thing is, the Bible becomes my glasses when I have a biblical worldview. It's the lens through which I look at the events of life, the war in Ukraine, the pandemic, my family's business, the church's business, the world around me, my relationships, my friends. All of that I interpret it through my view of the Scripture, a biblical worldview. And believe me, that's so important because, you see, ideas have consequences. Now, we are not a thoughtful people in America right now. We're not a thoughtful. We're not thinkers. We're not deep thinkers. We watch sports. We stay on social media. We speak about superficial things. People get uncomfortable if you get into the deep things of life with many of them. And so we're not a, a deep thoughtful people. We're not philosophical, and many are not even religious. And so the fact that they don't think about these profoundly important things, these deep things of life, the fact they don't think about them means they have no answers then to the ultimate questions of life. Ideas have consequences. What you believe this morning about anything determines how you think about it. And how you think about it determines what you're going to do about it. And what you do about it determines your destiny, ultimately. And so, ladies and gentlemen, you can't read anything ever in your life more important than the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and verse 1. When you get that nailed and you fully understand it, you've come a long way toward understanding what life is about. And so we start there right now. 
But I'm not going to start with in the beginning. Now, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Just put your eyes on that verse. That verse tells me the beginning of really everything. Everything. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heavens. There's space. God created the earth. There's matter. And the philosophers will all agree that there's three, the most three basic elements of the whole universe are time and space and matter. So in the very first few words of the Bible, time and space and matter are brought to our attention by the God who created this whole universe. But we're not going to begin there. We're going to go back before that. So you see where it says chapter 1? Okay, go back before that. And it says the first book of Moses called Genesis. Go back to that. Go back to the bottom of the last page. <laughs> because we're going to talk about what happened before the beginning. You say, well, nothing happened before the beginning, did it? Well, because this says in the beginning, it doesn't mean that there was nothing before Genesis 1.1. So what was there before Genesis 1.1? Well, in John 17 and 24... The Bible talks about God and Jesus existing together, that God loved Jesus before the foundation of the earth. So there we find out that God and His Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus, already existed before the beginning is what I want you to see. That the beginning, in the beginning, is not the beginning of everything. It's the beginning of time and space and matter. It's not the beginning, though, of God. It's not the beginning of Jesus. They are eternal, and they existed prior to that. And in John chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, and that's much more familiar, and I'm just going to read the whole thing here. In verse 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But this is in the beginning, keep in mind. It's already, the Word was already in existence. The Word is is Jesus Christ. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So God existed before the beginning. Jesus existed before the beginning. And John attests to that again. And then let's go to verse 2 here in Genesis 1. The earth was without, form, was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the, of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved. So the Spirit of God was in existence before the beginning. So when it says in the beginning, there was something already existing. It was the triune God. Go down to verse 26 of chapter number 1. And God said, let us, not let me, let us, plural, more than one. Who is the more than one? It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our own image, he says. So before the foundation of the world, there was God. God is, and, and I can make a deduction from that. God is eternal. He existed before Genesis 1 and 1. I'm just harping on that because I, I want everybody here, particularly you young people of all the people, oh, I plead with you, would you put the phones away and would you look up here today and listen to me? This is critical for you to understand life, critical for you to understand life. 
Before the foundation of the world, the Godhead was here. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he was active. He was active. He was doing things. Activity was occurring. And uh, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, it said that God was making choices. He hath chosen us before the foundation of the world. God was making choices. And in 1 Peter 1 and 20, he was making plans. The, he foreordained some things to come to pass before he ever even laid the foundations of the world. And so there were persons before, beginning, before the beginning in Genesis 1-1, there were persons, there were relationships. The father loved the son, for example. There was communication. They were talking back and forth, let us make man in our own image. There were choices being made. He had chosen us and him before the foundation of the world. There were plans being laid. So this is not the beginning of God. This is the beginning of the physical universe that we know around us. That's really important to get that fixed in your mind. Because I remember back in the 19, it was either the 70s or early 80s. There was a PBS program that was made, and it came on, and it was hosted by a guy named Carl Sagan, and he was a very, very famous scientist, probably the most famous scientist in the world at that point in time. How many of y'all remember that? Back the, and, and the program came on every single week, and it ran, I don't know, a, a season or two, and it would talk about nature but it was, really a, a, it was really a sermon on evolution is what it was. And Carl Sagan opened that program with music and picture, beautiful pictures of the space and, and planets and so on. And then he would always say, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. And the first time I ever heard that put goosebumps on my arms because that is the most arrogant statement a human being ever made. He may have been a renowned scientist. It is arrogance to the ultimate. The cosmos is all that ever is. How does he know that? That would presume he knows everything, wouldn't it? It ever was. Well, was he there? Is he eternal <laughs> or ever will be? Well, he doesn't know what's going to be in the future. Oh, the arrogance of some of these people that go to college for a day or two. And boy, he showed right there man's proclivity to just absolutely treat God as if he were nothing at all. The cosmos is all that ever is, or ever was, or ever will be. No, standing outside that cosmos, transcendent and supreme over it, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who existed before the worlds were ever spoken into being. 
before time and space and matter ever existed, God was there. Fix that in your mind. Now, to get back to the text, we'll catch up to it. In the beginning, God. And notice that the Bible presents God, the fourth, verse, fourth word of the first verse. It doesn't make any argument for God and say, now, I'm going to give you six proofs that there's a God. You know why it doesn't do that? Because His existence is presented to us as a self-evident fact. I'll tell you why it doesn't do that, because the book is written for all times. And when the Bible was written, there weren't any atheists. There weren't any atheists. You don't find atheism among pagan people. You don't find atheism in the far ancient times. You have to come way up and get to maybe the Greeks or somewhere there halfway through history before there are any atheists. My dad used to talk about people got too smart for their britches. Atheists are people who are too smart for their britches. And so we didn't have anybody wearing those kind of britches in those days. So, you know, uh, the Bible doesn't try to prove God. It just states that there is a God. But follow with me because it's going to tell us a whole lot about God that people today don't seem to know or care about. You see, the one of the things I hear today, aren't all gods the same? Well, wait till we get through with this verse and you determine, but I can tell you categorically they're not all the same. No. And people say, well, isn't the God of Islam and the God of Judaism and the God of Christianity and the God of Buddhism, and aren't those just different ways or just different names we refer to Him? Absolutely not. Because this verse teaches us something about our God that makes the God of Genesis 1-1 absolutely unique. The word for God from the Hebrew is Elohim. And the first two letters of it, E-L, refer to God. And the last part of it refer, is a, makes it a plural. And so Elohim, El, God, and you even see those words all through the Bible like Emmanuel. See, there's God in the name of him, Emmanuel. And what does Elohim mean? So now we're going to find out something about God. Elohim means the strong one, the mighty one, the supreme one, the one who is so great so transcendent, so sovereign, so powerful that we're to reverence Him. The idea of God here includes a connotation that He's to be reverenced. He's to be worshipped. He's to be treated with respect and honor above all other beings in existence. Now, I've tried to already establish that some things about this God, as I describe him to you. First of all, he's eternal. He existed before the foundation of the world, so we've already looked at that. But number two, I want you to think with me. This God is eternal. He is eternal, and he is infinite, secondly. He's infinite. What do I mean by infinite? Well, the word infinite means without limits. There's no limits to this God's character. And so, this God is so powerful that He can create an entire universe. 
So don't compare him to anything else because there's nothing else like him. His power, his omnipotence is the fancy word for it. His power is so great. He created in the beginning, he created the heaven and the earth. How great is that? It just makes you want to stop right now and sing, how great thou art, doesn't it? So he's infinite in his power. Number two, he's also personal. He's a personal God. Elohim was a personal God. He's not a God, he's not a force on Star Wars. And if you get your theology from Star Wars, you really are going to be messed up. I say it to you lovingly. But God is not a force. He's not like gravity. He's not like magnetism or electricity. He's a personal being. And what do I mean by that? Well, he has all the qualities of of a, of a human, of personhood. For example, he thinks. He feels. He loves. He makes plans and choices, as we've already seen in the previous scriptures here. You compare him to any of the other gods of the earth, and, and they're not like that. You see, you in, this, in the early days, people worshiped these idols, these tangible idols. It's somebody had this idea in their mind of what God was like, and they took wood or gold or silver or stone, and they carved and they made this figure. And then they, the, the idol then was the work of their own mind and their own hands. And then they would get down before it and pray to it and give offerings to it. But they had made it. They were greater than the God they created. The cause was greater than the effect. And all these gods of the pagans, they represented these forces of nature. The God of the storms, the God of fertility, the God of, of, of earthquakes, the God of lightning, the God of the rains. All of them were personifications of, of natural uh, events, natural forces, if you will. And so we have Elohim. No, no, he's not like that. He says, don't ever make an image of me because you would be reducing me to the limits of your own mind. And I'm greater than your mind. I'm greater than the universe. The cause here is greater than the effect. I created, I spoke that world into existence. And it's a plural word. Elohim is plural. A plural noun in Hebrew, which gives us a little hint of the Trinity. And so he exists, he's one essence, he's one being, but he exists in three persons. And I studied all week long, and I've studied now for over 52 years pastoring, trying to find a, a perfect illustration of the Trinity, and there's not one. I can't find it if there is. I don't believe there is one. Because, again, our minds are inadequate to really describe God fully as he is. But um, 
I'll give you the best example I can come up with, and it's H2O, chemical formula for water. That's the essence. Now, that water in the normal temperatures is, is, is a liquid. It's H2O. That's all it's there. And if you drop the temperature to below 32 degrees, then it solidifies and becomes ice, but it's still H2O. And then if you boil that water, the steam vapor comes up, and it's H2O. So you have it in its liquid form. You have it in its solid form. You have it in its vapor form. But it's all H2O. But there's a big limitation even with that illustration because, see, the members of the Godhead are not changing from one form to another. They're all three simultaneously living eternally, and yet they're the same essence, and yet they're manifested in three different persons. That's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? And it's really important that you understand now, I've described this God, Elohim, to you, the strong and mighty one, the supreme being, supreme being, he's above everybody else, everything else in existence. He is eternal. He existed before the beginning. He is infinite. He is unlimited in his power. He's unlimited in his wisdom and knowledge to be able to create a, create a universe. And he's personal. He's not a force. He's a being. And he's existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you how. Let me make an application because this is one of the most important phrases in all of the Bible, and you as a Christian need to understand the importance of it. In the very first phrase of the very first uh, uh, verse of the Bible, the Bible refutes just about everything that modern man believes today. It just takes it out in one fell swoop. You want to know why so many people are against the Bible? Because what the Bible teaches is against them. In the very first verse, it refutes atheism. The atheist says, there is no God. And the verse says, in the beginning, there is God. It refutes pantheism. Pantheism means everything is God, basically. And the Bible says, no, God transcends other things. He's not like them. He's not of the same nature. He is above time. He is above space. And he is above matter. It refutes polytheism because he's one God, not many gods. One God in three persons. The God who created all things. It refutes materialism. Materialism says that matter had no beginning. Matter existed eternally, and there's no reality outside of energy and matter. But the Bible says, oh, there is something that matters more than matter. <laughs> and what is that? It's God himself, and he transcends space and time and matter and energy. It refutes dualism. 
It says that God was alone when he created. There was nobody else there. It refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality in life. Now listen to me. In our society today, once you move outside of Christian thought, man is the ultimate reality. Man is at the center. And you find that right across the board. You find that in education. You find that in government. You find that in business. You find that in people's uh, view of, of, of the purpose of life. But let me tell you, you and I are not the center of things. Almighty God is the center of things. And when this universe is nothing but one little tiny cinder left, God will still be here. And, we have, and that verse refutes evolution. God, not some impersonal force, created the heaven and the earth. A personal, transcendent God, superior to all else, eternal, infinite. That God is the creator, not the blind, impersonal force of the evolutionist. So we refer sometimes to God as the great first cause, the first cause. What's the first cause? He caused everything else, to put it simply. He brought into existence all reality by his authority. He didn't have to ask anybody if he could do it. He didn't have to go get funding for it and raise some money by his own authority, by his own power, and by his own knowledge. Almighty God brought into existence the entire world. Now, a couple other things. Let's take one more word. In the beginning, God created. And the word for created is bara, B-A-R-A in Hebrew. It means to create, to shape, to fashion things. But how did he do it? Okay, turn with me, if you will, in your Bible to Psalm number 33. Psalm 33, because this is so important. I just want you to turn there, and we haven't turned a lot so we'll, we'll use our Bible for a moment, Psalm number 33, and I want you to look at verse 6 and maybe underscore it. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. This is one of many verses that says that God spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. He just spoke it into existence. We use the term ex nihilo, ex nihilo. And ex nihilo means out of nothing. It's a Latin term. Now, do you know why God created everything out of nothing? Well, very profound. Listen to me. I, want you, I don't want you to miss this. Do you know why God created everything out of nothing? Because there wasn't nothing for him to create it out of, Right? So he spoke, he spoke the power of the Word of God. By the way, we have it written. He spoke it orally that day. That's why we so reverence this book, the power of the Word of God. And so how did he create it? He created it out of nothing. There were no pre-existing materials. There was no dirt, no rocks, no chemicals. Now, the, 
the word create there, bara, is a very special word too. It's not used but three or four or five times in the whole Bible. And it has the idea uh, that cre- the, the idea of creating from nothing as opposed to making things. See, we make things. An artist, we say the artist is creative, but the artist uses pre-existing materials. Or the musician, we say the musician is creative, but the musician uses the uh, eight notes of the scale that God created, the sounds. Uh, the flower arranger, we say, oh, the fl- she's a creative flower arranger, but she uses pre-existing materials. And, and that's true of everybody. Every, everything that we use the term create for, we just make it. The carpenter makes, he doesn't create. But God created because there was nothing pre-existing for him to use. And so he created out of nothing. And how did he do it? He spoke, Psalm 33, 6. Now, there's so many good verses on Just maybe write these down. And I'll just quote them for you if you want. But my point here is that God spoke and the universe came into being. Psalm 33, 6, we've read that. Romans 4, 17 says, He called the things which are not, in other words, things that didn't exist yet, He called them as though they were. What a powerful thought. Only God could do that. He thought of things that He needed and wanted, and He spoke them into existence, and He used them to create the universe. Hebrews 11.3, the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that the things which are not seen, invisible things, oxygen, hydrogen, things like that, things that are not seen were not made by things which do appear by preexisting materials, but God spoke them into existence. Colossians 1.16, I have that one marked for you and me to read together. Will you turn there? Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. Because not very many people know that the primary creator was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When you think of creation, do you think of Jesus? He's the primary one in creation. So Colossians 1 and 16. For by him, Jesus, were all things created, all things created, that are in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Note this phrase, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And then there's John 1 and 3, and I've already read it to you, but I'll read it again. All things were made by Him, Jesus, the Word. And without Him was not anything made that was made. How wonderful. In the beginning, God created. There was nothing for Him to use, no pre-existing materials, nothing, nothing, nothing. And He spoke. And the universe came into existence. Evolution teaches me that nothing really supernatural exists. We call it naturalism. 
There's no supernatural. It tells me that matter always existed. It tells me that random forces are evolving and pushing us upward, that basically today we're simply the best organisms that have been produced so far by this blind, random chance. And it allows for no God. So if there's no God, there's no plan for my life. If there's no God, life has no value and life has no meaning other than to whatever little pleasure you might get out of it. Evolution, blind, random chance. Millions of things operating randomly. And we're just the best that it can do so far. And all these things just came into being randomly. In a biblical worldview, it starts with God. It doesn't start with man. It doesn't start with the universe. It starts with a God who's superior and supreme over the universe, who spoke the universe into existence. And if God created the universe... Listen to me. He's in charge. He has all authority. He has authority over you. He has authority over me. He's in charge. He created it. He's in charge. And so my role in life, understanding that, is I'm not the center of things. So my role in life is to seek to understand Him. And if I spend 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years on this planet and I don't understand Him, I might as well not have lived. But if I understand Him, ah, that's the fount of all truth, isn't it? Now, I understand Him, and I try to do His will. There's an implication there. And my life has meaning. If He created me, He has a plan for me. And so I have value, not because of me. I have value because He bestowed that value on me. He created me in His image, which we will get to in profound truth. And so I have value because of Him. He is in charge. He knows all things from the beginning to the end, so I have a plan. And I can't miss His plan. It's too important. Now, one of his plans is that nobody perish. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God's plan for you today is to become his child through a big word we use, regeneration or salvation, being born again. And the way that you do that is, first of all, you repent. 
you understand that you're lost. You understand that you are by nature going the wrong way. You're a sinner by both nature and practice. And you say, this is wrong. I'm living my life like there's no creator. Oh, I say that I believe in God, but it has no real practical implications in my life. I'm living like, I'm living like an atheist, though I say I believe in God. And I'm going my own way. I'm making my own decisions. I'm doing what I want to do. And repentance means I stop and I see my true condition. I'm lost. And I, I change my mind about myself. I change my mind about my sin. And I abhor it because I know it's offensive to God. I change my mind about Him. And I submit to his authority. And then I hear the gospel that he sent his son who became a man through the virgin birth, went to the cross and died and shed his blood for my sins. And by an intentional choice and act of my will, I come to Christ and I put my sins under his blood. And the Bible says that he comes into my heart and he regenerates. He produces life. Root word, same word as Genesis. He produce, it's the beginning. He creates a new person, a new creature because of his grace. So Genesis 1.1, not anything I can preach more important. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Will you stand quietly and reverently with me to your feet?